0: Hello, everyone. My name is Amy Ziegert. I'm the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and I'm delighted to welcome everyone to Hoover's Capital Conversations. Uh, As you may know, Capital Conversations is an ongoing series featuring discussions between those who generate the ideas that enable a free society and policymakers who turn those ideas into actionable policy. We invite everyone to listen and participate in these discussions between our issue experts and policymakers as we consider solutions to our nation's most difficult challenges. As part of the discussion, we'll be taking audience questions and we encourage all of you to uh, enter your questions at the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen at any time during our conversation. I am delighted today to be uh, talking with two experts in artificial intelligence, Ely Bajraktari and Anshu Roy. Ely is the executive director of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, a bipartisan commission that recently submitted its final report to Congress. Prior to joining the commission, Ely served as chief of staff to national security advisor and my Hoover colleague, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He has also held a variety of leadership roles for former Deputy Secretary of Defense, Robert Wark, and served as special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dempsey. Originally joining the Defense Department in 2010, Ely served in the office of the Undersecretary for Policy as a country director for Afghanistan and later India. He is the recipient of the Defense Department's Distinguished Civilian Service Medal the highest award for career civilian Defense Department employees. Joining him today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Anshu Roy, the founder and CEO of Rhombus Power, a NASA research park startup that is transforming the nation's defense and national security enterprises with Guardian, which is its AI platform. Before starting Rhombus, Anshu teamed up with Nobel Laureate, Professor Alan Heger, to set a world record in solar cell efficiency. He earned his doctorate from the University of Michigan at the intersection of materials, complex systems, high performance computing, and turbulence. He is also the inventor of Mercury, Rhombus's patented platform for solid-state subatomic particle detection. I want to welcome uh, both of you to Capital Conversations And if I could start, I just gave a very brief official introduction to each of you, Ili and Anshu, but I'd love for you in this world of AI and being able to find everything online to share one thing about yourselves that nobody could find by Googling you. Ili, why don't we start with you?
1: Uh, thanks, Amin. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, share the stage, virtual stage, with my friend Anshu. The one thing maybe that you can find online is that I always loved uh, electronic music, so my dream was to be a DJ. But I never managed to become a DJ, so maybe one day, if uh, I have time, uh, I'll dedicate my my life to that.
0: It's not too late for you, I'm sure. <laughs> Anshu, what about you?
2: Well, Amy, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And Lee, it's, it's a real pleasure to be talking today. Um, I, about me, um, well, uh, I think uh, the one thing people don't know about me is that uh, I was the first entrepreneur to knock on the doors of DIUX right here in Moffitt Field. And, and uh, I, I, I feel proud about that.
0: Well, I think we're gonna come back to that later in the conversation about what it's like to be the first to do business from the private sector at, the, at an innovation hub like DIUX. Well, Thank you for that, um, for sharing that. I wanna start with the very basics. AI is a technology, as you both know, that is never, has never been more important or misunderstood. So Anshu, can you share with our audience how you define artificial intelligence and why this is such an important moment for AI.
2: Sure. The way I think about artificial intelligence is um, in the context of um, Judea Pearl's triangle. And uh, he he very articulately positions it in in, in his book called The Book of Why. Um, And and I found that to be very educational for myself. I think of artificial intelligence as a digital nervous system that connects uh, entities that are part of it in a form that uh, improves cognition of very complex issues and problems and the solving of those problems in a manner where you meet you, you force the intersection of uh, computer derived insights with biological intelligence, such that the ambient intelligence of an entire group begins to ra- get raised and, and folks can focus more on the higher level cognitive aspects of their work as opposed to the menial, menial tasks that we are really subject to as, as drones working on computers today.
0: And, and why, just to follow up, why is this a particularly promising moment for AI? Why now?
2: Why now? Um, I think it is, th- there are at least two different ways to look at it, in my opinion. The first is the technology aspect of it, which is, uh, with the inflection in, in cloud compute power, in, in memory storage, in communications, when, when though you combine those three things together, uh, and, and the uh, democratization of open source um, derived uh, algorithms, where anybody sitting anywhere, even in a remote corner of India, can put together a code and launch it online, then what you have is really a, a compute platform that's accessible to all is inexpensive and multiple folks on that platform in a networked way can derive benefits that they can then share back with the network. So it's the innovation that creates this moment today technological innovation. The second way to look at it, I think, is from the perspective of what I call, um, from the perspective of, of the US as a nation and any other nation for that matter, from a national perspective. Um, I think we we are at a point where, um, thanks to the technological innovation, we, we have the opportunity to inspire a generation to raise the bar on what could be done to improve our collective lot. And I think that to me is, is uh, exciting and, uh, and that's what makes this the moment.
0: So Ely, I wanna tag to what Anshu just said. There, This is a moment of great promise in a variety of ways, but there's a lot of fear out there and your former boss Bob Work has talked about it and when he's been talking about the commission Skynet, Terminator, lots of fears about AI. So can you share from your perspective, you've worked on this now for two years, what are the biggest myths and misperceptions about AI?
1: Thanks, Amy. Uh, So like every other technology or that is both promising, even AI has its own challenges. And I think uh, we are really at the beginning of understanding like uh, on what Anshu was saying, all the promises that AI can bring to humanity, to our economy, Uh, and ultimately our national security, which was the angle we looked at the AI from the National Security Commission's perspective. Uh, But also there are many challenges associated with uh, using this technology. This technology is developed by humans and in itself, you know, we make errors. Uh, These technologies reflect our values, uh, our work. Uh, And so you might have unintended consequences. The technology might uh, be biased, uh, might uh, might be used for malign activities, both by state and non-state actors. And so, um, you know, the AI in, all, in of itself will not magically solve all the problems that we, have, we as humans don't have ideas how to solve. Uh, AI instead will bring the power of high compute that Anshu was talking with techniques like machine learning to solve problems faster than humans could on their own um, or find insights that uh, were not apparent to us as humans.
0: So can you follow up a little bit more Ely with, so we're talking generally about promises, you know, the promise of AI. So I'll give you an example that comes to my mind. I'd like each of you to share concrete examples of the, the sort of the, the hopeful side of AI, and then we'll get to the, the sort of pitfalls of AI. So two colleagues of mine at Stanford uh, in January came and they wanted to understand a trade between China and North Korea. And they did this by counting trucks crossing bridges between China and North Korea. They created a simple machine learning algorithm, they use commercially available satellite imagery, and they are not trained in computer science. Their basic algorithm was able to analyze those images, hundreds of images over several years in 20 minutes. And that would have taken a human trained analyst in imagery analysis almost a month to do. And the algorithm did it in 20 minutes. So that's one example when I think about what can AI do for me? Right? It's from an intelligence perspective, really, as you talked about, um, taking the mundane tasks away and enabling humans to focus on things like what's the intent of the North Korean regime. So can each of you share some examples of what you think is the greatest promise of AI, whether it's a current application or a future one? Ely, why don't we start with you?
1: Thanks, Amy. So we looked at it from the national security perspective, and just as a, as a setting the level of Congress created the National Security Commission about two years ago. I think what Congress understood back then was, you know, with all the promises that AI has, both for economic, social, and national security aspect of uh, our country, you know, we're we're lacking behind and we have not gone all in in understanding and applying this and adopting it for our federal government uh, departments and agencies. So they created this commission, they picked 15 commissioners, some of them are technologies. Some of them come from, a, you know, serving in government and uh, academia. And we, we looked at, you know, what is the private sector doing right now? What is the latest in terms of research at the academic level? And then we recommended to Congress and the executive branch actions that they need to adopt now in order for us to move faster inside the federal government. So, again, the purpose of this commission was really, you know, from a national security perspective. It's not, you know, what can federal government do to enable AI for humanity or for the economic benefits. But when you look at it, the task came from the Armed Services Committee. So we were looking at the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, all the departments and agencies that have a national security mission. And to your point, Amy, uh, all these agencies and departments are dealing with massive amounts of data. Uh, Let's take intelligence community, something that you're passionate about, Amy, and you have written about this. You know, the amount of data that all the intelligence community can gather through the satellites, through, you know, interceptions and everything else, uh, it will be impossible to task humans to go, um, you know, and, and listen and watch and, and analyze all those images. So what, what AI can do is it can help humans sift through thousands and millions of, you know, images and, and, and files and, and flag for human some anomalies, something that to pay attention. I mean, if it's uh, the trucks going from China to North Korea, one example that you mentioned, whether it's the assembly of Russian troops in the Eastern border of of Ukraine. um, I mean, uh, AI can be a really good sort of like indicator and warning uh, warning, can provide a lot of indicators and warnings uh, capabilities to humans. And so you can dedicate a lot of these um, you know, tasks to machines and, and relieve humans from a mundane tasks and have them uh, supervise these machines in a way they conduct their work or tasks in this case.
0: So Anju, your company is, is you know, on the front lines of, of these kinds of applications. Can you share some specific examples of how AI is assisting in the national security space?
2: Yes, absolutely. So uh, I'll I'll just build on what what uh, Illy just uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, so if you think about artificial intelligence, and this kind of circles back to your first question about what is AI, um, you know, all these various things that we're talking about, including the example you just presented, um, I, I I see them as um, fundamentally these are problem solving exercises. So we define a question. important question however complex that might be whether it is at a tactical operational or strategic level and then we kind of work our way backwards from there to figure out what is that the data set that we need in order to address that question and the more we can enrich it the more powerful the insights turn out to be the automation that that machine learning and other such tools provide to us and other various other statistical techniques not just machine learning provide to us are uh, rooted in mathematics. And so one of the things that um, I often like to talk about is, you know, AI holds a great promise for sort of mathematizing business processes. And, and that, that's, some, that's an opportunity that I think uh, we uh, landed upon uh, several years ago, working with the Department of Defense and particularly the Air Force. Uh, where we realized that uh, we can actually start at the very top, which is at the strategic level, all the way at the the level of the chief of staff, in this case, and, and start to sort of work our way down, all the way down to the action officers on the ground, the tactical level, and provide an integration in this enterprise with various levels of, shall we say, intelligence, indications and warning, tied to threats but also tied to questions such as what moves the needle against the threat how do we go by it how do we actually ensure that we can do it quickly and are we moving the needle so if you think about that whole decision cycle and the implementation cycle bringing in speed into that is at the heart of where I think the promise of AI lies in in the Department of Defense in general, as well as the intelligence community.
1: Amy, can I just add one one good thing to what Anshu said? So, in our final report, we look at exactly how can you separate these tasks within the Department, the IC, and so we came up with like four categories. Although you know, like you can have multiple categories, but I think for the purposes of today's conversation, four categories are really. Uh, those tasks that, you know, AI can be applied to help DOD or IC. Number one is how can DOD or IC better prepare as institutions, the admin side of the uh, task, for example, business processes, ta- you know, like travel uh, requirements, the time sheets, the, all the like back office, uh, so like tasks that a lot of like private sector companies now have been uh, moving to- towards automation. DOD and IC still struggles with that. They still have human uh, you know, individuals really uh, doing these mundane tasks. The second piece is sensing and understanding. So as, as we discussed with this amount of data, you need uh, machines that are capable to give you some kind of a sense and understanding of the environment, of the landscape, of movements, et cetera. The third category is what Ansh was also talking about is the, the decision-making. You know, Machines can provide leaders at all levels inside these institutions with options. Much, much faster than humans can. And then it will be up to the humans to decide what course of action they need to take. And then, lastly, the way we execute missions. And this involves, you know, from movement of troops and logistics to executing some, uh, you know, missions in any part of the world. But I think machines can help sort of like prepare uh, all these institutions that have national security missions along these four categories because. I think, uh, and you know, it depends. Like some some institutions are much better on the on the on the business side of this. Some of them are still struggling. I know Anshu has had his uh, you know uh, experience in 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 trying to help the department in terms of the logistics, which I think is a critical piece in, in how you can save money by applying AI uh, towards a such a critical uh, task for the, for the military.
0: Well, thanks for that. So, of course, we've talked about the promise of AI and what the U.S. is doing, but the U.S. is not alone in seeing the promise of AI and intelligence and defense. And Ilya, your commission spent a lot of time looking at the AI competition with China and really got below the headlines to look at six parts of the AI competition with China. So can you share that that sort of analysis and where we're ahead and where we're not ahead?
1: Thanks, Amy. I think one of the purposes of the commission was really to do an assessment of where we are versus uh, our key competitors. And here really, I mean, we're talking about China because, you know, yeah, China uh, has publicly announced that they, they have a strategy, they're putting resources towards that. Uh, it's really a top-down driven, so like emphasis on how they see. So like a a, a range of technologies that they, they want to dominate, whether you know, they're saying 2025 or 2030, uh, we looked at informally on, first of all, we, we wanted to understand what is AI. So uh, according to one of our commissioners, Andrew Moore, who was a professor at Carnegie Mellon and now is with Google Cloud, uh, he calls AI a constellation of, set of six things. It's, it's a combination of hardware, algorithms, people, data, application, and integration. So if you if you have all of this, Uh, You know, and if you're working along these six elements, then you will have that sort of like AI uh, that you can apply towards any mission set. And so when we informally analyze these six elements, um, we came to this kind of an informal conclusion that United States leads in three areas. Hardware, and this is like the semiconductors piece. Algorithms, because our companies are still at the forefront of producing the best algorithms in the world. And people, because our universities... And our companies are still attracting some of the best and the brightest talent to come and study here. And ultimately, they they contribute to our nation's, uh, you know, prosperity. Uh, China leads in three other elements. Data, obviously, for obvious reasons. Applications, because they're already using AI, uh, you know, as we see daily for the suppression of minorities, social control, etc. And then uh, then lastly, the, the integration piece. China has the lead in integrating all the elements of AI. Uh, into um, into one piece, just because uh, you know the domestic political system is so different, and the and the civil-mill fusion that exists over there allows for a better integration of how they use these kind of technologies uh, for dual purposes.
0: So there, Anshu, did you want to jump in here?
1: I
2: just wanted to add that um, uh, you know, from my perspective, um, where the U.S. is. Is perhaps uh, finding itself uh, leading is in its ability to um, redefine what artificial intelligence actually means. I think what um, and great respect for Andrew Moore and I love the the, the six dimensions. I what what I would contend. Is that it's time we moved away from calling you know AI should not be artificial intelligence, it's got to be ambient intelligence and that's just something I constructed but I think it makes sense because when you as we are working our way through this and we combine all the associations we find in the data and all the the interventions we can consider through in a causal manner through biological uh, uh, sort of uh, understanding, so human understanding, the Eli mentioned people, um, and and ultimately deriving courses of action, which is what Eli referred to, which is, of course, part of understanding things that have not happened thus far. So there is no machine learning for that. You can only simulate that. So when you combine these three things together, with humans in the loop, drive it top down. And, and I think there are actual opportunities here, actual instances here that we are encountering where the US government is doing that, uh, especially in the Air Force. I think we are able to provide uh, this country with with a leading edge um, in, in, con, in consistent with our value system. So, you know, you you ask the question why AI matters and why now and why the general in general this competition is so important, because it's an opportunity for us to inspire a generation towards uh, leading uh, with our core values and and spread that across the world um, in in ways that that China simply cannot. I want to I
0: want to come in a minute to the core values that you just raised, but I wanna do a a bit of a public service announcement for those who are just joining us. I'm Hoover Senior Fellow, Amy Ziegert, and this is Hoover's Capital Conversations with Ili Bajraktari and Anshu Roy. We are gonna start our Q&A from the audience shortly, so if you haven't already and you have a burning question, type it into the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen. Anshu, let's come back and talk about values, and Ili, I want you to weigh in on this too. Obviously, lots of concern about ethics in AI. And there's a tension in the National Security Commission on AI report. Are we moving too fast or are we moving too slowly? So let's talk a little bit about the ethics part of it. And Anshu, let's start with you. What do you think are the most important ethical considerations in how AI is used today? And how do you think about them? And Ilya I want you to weigh in on the on the ethical considerations and the, and the speed issue. Are we moving too fast or moving too slowly? Anshu, over to you.
2: Thank you, Amy. So um, I think you know if, if we consider the, the the American value system and 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 what defines us and and differentiates us in 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 very uh, clear ways from the rest of the world, uh, you know, our freedoms matter, our privacy matters, and 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 national security also matters. So when we think about all of that. And, and the balance around this. And, and considering that we, we, we are a nation of laws and we will be for a long time to come, hopefully, um, there, is, there is a uh, question one must ask as to how can we use technology uh, to ensure those, those particular uh, values are protected of freedom, of privacy, as well as the outcome, which is security uh, on our side. And one of the things that we've enabled on our platform is, is uh, what may sound very mundane, but it's called a data policy manager. And it's, it's, it's really something that uh, has, has uh, gotten a lot of traction within the government because it it actually helps in ensuring uh, that folks who are uh, protecting certain kinds of information can be absolutely 100% confident that it will remain protected in particular ways, but certain insights can actually be shared across the entire network in order to generate that sort of swarm intelligence, which I'm sort of alluding to in an ambient sense. So uh, I think when applied at scale across the country, and again, that has to come from top down, the president needs to enforce it, in my opinion, I'm saying this as a citizen of the United States, I think there will be, uh, uh, you know, we'll find ourselves doing this right, shall I say.
1: So Amy, I would just add to what Anshu was saying. Number one is uh, to link it to your previous question about where are we versus China. I think this is a values competition. I think the technologies we use reflect our values or should reflect our values because they're developed by the systems, the political, the democratic system that we have in this country versus you know how China produces, develops, and fields these kinds of technologies. So ultimately, I think uh, the world has to be presented with an alternative model to what the Chinese uh, have presented the world right now in terms of how they use AI-related technologies. The second issue is, to your question, is our government moving fast? I would say they're not moving fast enough, but again, uh, as they move faster I think they have we have to be careful which links to my third point of how we use these technologies to Anshu's point we need to be careful uh, in terms of like how that impacts our privacy our civil liberties and our human rights um, out of 16 chapters in our final report Amy two chapters really uh, try to get to the core of this issue because we understand this is a you know, there's a lot of skepticism, there's a lot of nervousness about how government might use these kind of technologies. So we dedicated two chapters in our final report really outlining so like this the concrete steps our government needs to undertake once it develops and field these kind of capabilities and the role and, and, and responsibilities we have as a as a society, you know, to you know complain to address these uh, to address these issues. But again, going back to this issue is what makes our what makes our system different from the chinese system is that the citizens will have the right to redress their issues uh we have courts where people can appeal uh i don't think something similar exists in china and so those are i think the, the things that we need to highlight that this is a promising technology it can it, it can create a lot of benefits to our economy to our society and ultimately our national security which was the point of our report but uh, we have to be careful in the way we develop and feel these, uh, these applications.
0: So uh, we'll, we'll try to get the uh, link to your full report, 759 pages for those who want to do a lot of homework uh, in the chat function. Uh, so our viewers can actually take a look at the, at the whole thing. And I commend it to, uh, to all of our, our listeners here today. Um, before we turn it over to audience Q&A, we're getting some great questions from our, from our audience members today. Anshu, I wanna come back to what you said at the very beginning, how you were the first to knock on the door of DIUX, which is the De- Defense Innovation Unit. X stands for experimental. When it was first set up, it had an X. Now it's graduated to no X. So you were among the first to try to cross what is you know, what is known as a divide between Silicon Valley and Washington. So can you share um, what the challenges were of that experience, and how we can get more companies to work with the U.S. government like you do.
2: Sure, Amy. So uh, thanks for asking that question. Uh, the my experience has nothing been nothing but pleasant uh, with with the DoD. I would admit um, mostly, and uh, you know it's a with with the DIUX um, the, that that uh, organization moving into the Silicon Valley, Um, and we being here in NASA, uh, in the NASA Research Park, it it all started with a a short note that I got from the director of NASA saying, you need to go check him out. And uh, and I did the very next day. And, And when I knocked the door, you know, they were expecting the furniture guy to show up. And and they, they were just getting set up. They were a startup just like us, and that was so heartening because uh, you know we instantaneously became friends and uh, we started talking. Now it took two years, by the way, before we landed our first contract. And of course, we had the means to sustain and 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 sort of uh, stick around. Um, the I think the challenge that young companies face in this particular area is um, they have very poor understanding of how contracting works and and how uh what it entails how resourcing happens and how programs get built and those kinds of things um and and that's where the big companies have a huge advantage because of their legacy uh and and so These experimental ideas, some of them have worked, some of them have not, but uh, we need more of them. We need more prototyping to happen. Uh, We need, uh, we need, but at the same time, I think the younger companies need to be shown a pathway to production and adoption of what they're going to be building. And that sometimes is not very clear. And there's a huge canyon, as you know, that one must be able to cross uh, in order to ultimately get to the other side. After which, I mean, there's no certainty naturally it's life, but but still, I mean, things get a little bit steadier beyond that.
0: Ely, you've seen it from the perspective of the government. And I know that the, the chairman of the commission famously said the defense department doesn't have a technology problem. It has a technology adoption problem. Lots of different pockets of innovation within the Pentagon DIU is one of them, Um, AFRL, the Air Force uh, Research Lab. And that's promising, but it's also an indicator that the main bureaucracy isn't working well when you have to have workarounds with innovation centers. So can you talk about um, what you found and the top recommendations from the commission to try to enhance the pace of adopting technology from the commercial sector?
1: Thanks, Amy. Uh, I mean, what Anshu was describing, uh, we heard from many other companies we we discussed in the last two years, and there were hundreds of small to medium-sized companies that are willing to work with the Department of Defense. They're, you know, uh, ready to do it. Uh, They have, uh, you know, applications that I think would benefit our national security. But as Anshu noted, there are so many obstacles for these small companies to really just maintain, uh, uh, being alive by the time, uh, you know, Department of Defense would react. So what, what we really tried to do in our final report is really address this problem, what I would say once and for all, because this problem has been going on for such a long time. You know, uh, my general sense is that we should stop admiring the problem, but really come up with solutions. And so in our final report, we have several recommendations of how to fix this. And I'm hoping that, you know, like in the upcoming NDAA, Congress really takes our recommendations and acts on them because I think it would be a shame that we have the same conversation, Amy, next year in which we continue to, uh, you know, listen to the problems that Anshu has had for the last several years, how to penetrate the Department of Defense. So number one is our commissioners really believe that this has to be a top driven process. That unless you have the top four leadership, and this is when I say the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy, the Chair, and the Vice Chair, really drive these modernization phase, uh, you will continue to have, as you mentioned, islands of hopes inside the Department of Defense. But nothing will be scaled. So we will continue again to admire this problem. Uh, you know, uh, Ashu will still struggle to have uh, anybody really take his software or his application and use it because of the layers of bureaucracy. And so the top-down push was, was one of the key things. We also argued for a, a better linkage between the intelligence community and DOD. And so our recommendations go along, like I would say three type of uh, uh, aspects of what, what we can do to change. Number one, one is the organizational aspects, like how can you drive this from a leadership perspective? And what are some of those other things that you can do internally to reorganize DOD to better be positioned for this kind of a technolo- te- technology competition, so we have recommendations about how you have a more robust uh, R&E uh, undersecretary, in which he serves as the chief technology officer of the department. Um, the second aspects of our recommendations really deal with people, uh, as we discussed through this conversation today. Uh, the DoD first of all, needs to better manage the talent that it has internally. There are so many talented mili- military men and women in uniform that already are familiar with coding and already are familiar uh, familiar with the computer science. Uh, DoD just needs to have a better career path for these kind of individuals. And then second aspect, as Amy, as you know, is we've been discussing for so many years how you bring technologies faster into government. This has been an ongoing you know, like debate for years of like, why does it take so long for DoD to bring technologies faster into government? And so we have an interesting recommendation that I believe, why did it took us so long to come up with this, is creating a digital reserve core for all the federal government. Military services, they all have the reserve core. Why can't we have a, a, a system in which a technologist out of Silicon Valley wants to help government He doesn't want to leave the company, but he wants to serve part-time or less than part-time, as we say, less than 40 days a year. And he can be deployed. He can be detailed to any of the departments and agencies to help them with any of the problems they have related to AI or these emerging tech. And so that recommendation is now with the Hill. We have some indications that they, they might be sponsors. And I'm really hopeful that we really close this chapter once and for all of like, how we bring these talented people inside the government to help. Because this is the biggest barrier. Uh, our key advantages as I mentioned earlier are people. But unless you have pathways to bring these people faster, we will still continue in this like stovepipe environment in which we will, we will have the same conversation a year from now on the same issue. And then lastly, resources. How departments, uh, how departments and agencies allocate resources toward modernization matters you know, moving towards a a cloud-based data, uh, you know, uh, platforms is not cheap. And so we have to move towards, you know, what the department calls it, a legacy systems to a much more modernized, you know, AI enabled, uh, and we call it for a DoD AI ready by 2025, where everything operates in a seamless way. Because otherwise, if we don't move towards this, Uh, I really worry that we might lose this global competition on AI simply because we are so bogged down in our bureaucratic processes and the whole dynamic between the departments and agencies and Congress of how to move this faster. Well, you know, it will keep us back uh, to the necessary step we have to undertake now.
0: Thanks for that. It's a green sheet surrounded by red tape. So hopefully we'll come back a year from now and you'll talk about how much progress we've made. So I wanna get to some of our terrific audience questions and I'm gonna lump a couple of them together. So uh, Victor asks, and I'm gonna add a question from William, do bias detection programs in AI exist? And coupled with that, William asks, how can those knowledgeable about AI convince the public and our members of Congress to trust the use of AI, so that's sort of the flip side. So we know bias exists in algorithms. Are there bias detection systems, and how can we convince elected officials and others to trust AI, given that we hear a lot about the bias? Uh, Anshu, why don't we start with you, and then Ely, you can weigh in.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question, and yes, bias detection algorithms absolutely exist. And and when when biases creep into these algorithms, you know what I blame it to poor mathematics. Or statistics okay and and it's 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 a developer problem frankly okay so we messed up and and we need to own it so how do we how do we do that well a couple of things one there's verification and validation right when you build a new plane you verify and validate the hell out of it right well, in this case, you can do it much faster. It's all about speed, as the NSCI report talks. But if the, we were, why would it compress it to one word? It's talking about speed. So, how do you verify and validate quickly? Get the developers just completely uh, fused with the users. And it'll happen very, very fast, and the iterations will happen quickly, and we'll all learn jointly and learn to trust this thing. The second thing that that has to be literally mandated is AI needs to be explainable. Because if it's not, it's really no good. I mean, you don't have to understand the nitty gritty of exponential functions and, and tan hyperbolic functions. You don't need to do that, but the logic has to be explainable. And that's one of the things we expose in our in our platform. It's completely white box, completely white box. So we have uh, a thing called a data DNA and an analysis DNA, which the user can see at any point in time, and they can sort of trace their steps back into the original bit and byte that might be causing that kind of a bias to creep in. So that's my sense of it, more verification and validation and more demand, more explainability all the time.
1: And Amy, I add to awesome points that Anshu made just that, What we say in our final report that for all AI systems that involve, uh, you know, individuals, uh, all the departments and agencies should prepare and publish risk assessment and conduct impact assessments to assess the privacy, civil liberties, and civil rights implications for new qualifying AI systems, and significant and, and those systems that require refreshes. So, uh, I think this is a new area for all of us, and I think the departments and agencies they still don't have enough talent because you're dealing with a a technology that is changing daily. And so I think on one hand, you know, uh, TE and VV that Anshu mentioned is critical in ensuring that these companies are going through all the necessary steps. And, uh, you know, you have so like insights in how these applications were developed. And then on the other hand, you know, uh, the government agencies should have what we call it a key considerations Uh, documents that we have published in our final report on how you use these kind of applications and what kind of roles and responsibilities each of the departments and agencies have when they develop and field these kind of applications.
0: So we have just a a few minutes left. So we're going to go to the speed dating round of our conversation. So I'm going to throw out a bunch of questions and then you guys can decide which ones you want to answer to what extent. Okay. So question from David. This is more direct at you, Illy. Um, will our military move more towards AI using fewer troops to accomplish its, its missions? So this is the use of AI in battle, and how does that affect troops? Um, there's a question from Kimberly about work displacement. Ansh, maybe, maybe you can talk to that. So we've talked in our conversation about AI is very useful at doing tasks that are mundane and require a lot of automation. What happens to all those people who are, who are employed in those jobs? Uh, what's the future of our economic Uh, uh, labor market um, if AI does what we expect it to do over the next 10 to 25 years, sort of broadly. And I'd add to that question, what are the geopolitical ramifications of that economic displacement? And then third, uh, a question about K-12 STEM education. We've talked a lot about talent, talent, talent. And yet K-12 education uh, is in need of much greater attention and innovation, particularly in light of COVID. So thoughts on K-12 education? Uh, Eli, why
1: don't we start with you? Yeah, um, so thanks David, great question. Uh, I think in the initial phases, we will see more of a human machine collaboration in these missions. I don't think that, uh, you know, uh, initially we will see AI systems deployed uh, uh, independently. What happens, what I think will happen over time is that as our military goes through TEVV processes that uh, Anshu said, and they get uh, this kind of a trust between you know, the machines and the soldiers. I think we will see a, a human machine teaming uh, early on in these kind of deployments uh, uh, until, you know, until we, we get to the point that maybe, you know, some operations might require just machine deployed uh, systems. Uh, but I think initially this will be, you know, really just machines enabling humans to make better decisions Giving them a better situational awareness of the battlefield, of the landscape, of the troop movements, etc. So I think those will be the initial stages in execution of the military missions that we will see. Elite, to your point, I would add: I think
2: that uh, you know the anticipatory aspect of it is very important. So one has to be able to uh, apply AI for anticipating uh, things in the battlefield, as etc. or Battlefield could be internal as well, it doesn't have to be out there in Afghanistan, for example. But the, the point is that you know, this is a very uh, old theory uh, of warfare, which is economy of force, and certainly these capabilities uh, enable greater economy of force and as less troop involvement. How and and that's that's a good thing, in my opinion. That's a very good thing. And, and UAVs did that for a while uh, in, in many of these theaters uh, when they were used for ISR and other such capabilities. Um, coming back to the question of you know uh, displacement of workforce, my question is, why can't we do more? I mean, why can't we raise the bar? Organizations can do more. The same people can do more when driven top down and, and when the leadership is actually saying, let's achieve more. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we have more time, now that we made things faster and quicker. So that's where I would, I would leave that.
0: On that happy note, um, let me thank both of our guests today, Ili Bajraktari and Anshu Roy for a really enlightening conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you can learn more about this series at hoover.org forward slash capital conversations. I wanna thank everybody for joining us today. And I hope you'll tune in for future capital conversations. Thanks so much, Elian and Anshu, for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you, Amy. Thank you.